BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to say Happy New Year to everybody out there. It is now 2020, and this is the first episode of the new year. Hope everyone had a wonderful holiday and is having a fantastic start to your new year. And we have a fantastic episode to launch the 2020 ACRAC season, and that is with a wonderful guest who I'm excited to talk to, Dr. Michael Manning. He is an MD-PhD assistant professor at Duke, Department of Anesthesiology. He's the director of research for the perioperative medicine fellowship there, and he has a variety of interests, but one of his main areas of interest in research and practice is ERAS and opioid-free anesthesia. And so I've asked him to come on the show, and so glad he agreed to talk about opioid-free anesthesia. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, no, thank you. You and I were chatting a little before we started recording, and you know, you told me you have a little bit of an unusual route to your MD PhD. Um, so, you know, I think people always like to hear. Tell me a little bit about uh, that, how you kind of got the degrees, and then what led you to your interest in the topic uh, of opioid-free anesthesia. Sure. <clears throat> so, I, I started off as a straight PhD student, and uh, my work was in cardiac physiology. And I got to the point where um, I was interested in the application of the physiology that we were researching. Um, I was interested in angiotensin II and its role in hypertension and uh, the development of abdominal aortic aneurysms and ended up getting into anesthesia because it's a, you know, a great specialty for a physiologist um, and then ended up going to, to Duke for my cardiac fellowship and then ended up staying on as faculty. Um, so I attend cases in, uh, the cardiac suites and there was an opportunity several years ago to kind of branch out onto the general side. We were having a lot of patients come through with, uh, LVADs at that point, having kind of lifestyle surgery, hips, 
needing their gallbladders out. Um, and they wanted some cardiac expertise to come out and handle these cardiac sick patients for non-cardiac surgery. So I volunteered for that. And when I was doing that part of, um, that was working with Tim Miller, who's really, um, just a forerunner in ERAS at Duke. And he said, look, you know, if you're going to be working with us over here on this side, you got to do a quality improvement project. And so, you know, you're struggling trying to figure out, well, okay, what am I, what am I going to do? And I was working with trainees on lap coles. great teaching case, great physiology. Uh, you got the insufflation and the reverse T-bird position. So it's a great case to, to teach. And I noticed that the patients weren't waking up the way I would have expected them to and started making some observations like, okay, well, what's going on? And noticed that we were using an abundance of opioids for the cases. Yeah. And so I started looking at the practice and, and kind of how we workflow through these cases. And that's when it struck me. It's like, ah, you know, let's, let's start looking at opioids and how we use opioids and what we're using them for. And that's kind of how I got to be where I am. And that was the, the initiating event that led to me getting into opioid free, opioid reduced anesthesia. Yeah, that's so interesting. <clears throat> and I think several really neat kind of points from that. One is, you know, uh, I think people often think of quality improvement projects uh, or, you know, the area as kind of being an, an a burden or something that, you know, they don't fully understand. But, you know, it's if you just look around you in what you're doing every day, you often will find uh, a rich opportunity for things. And so I think it's really great that you kind of saw, uh, you know, just in what what was being taken for granted as the way to do these cases as something that might actually be uh, an area to be improved. And then I think, you know, we'll get more into it, but, you know, ways to think about how to reduce that, uh, you know, clearly what you started thinking about is really, really interesting too. Let's start mm -hmm. though, really basically with the question of, you know, what does it actually mean? It may seem pretty self-explanatory, but when we say opioid free mm -hmm. anesthesia, what actually are we talking about? So, Almost every anesthetic is conducted with some amount of opioids. And as you know, as you know um, we give opioids at the time of induction to offset the sympathetic surge from putting a piece of tubing where tubing normally doesn't belong. Um, and then we, we assume patients feel things while they're asleep. And so we treat with opioids or we're, we'll work in some opioids uh, towards the end of the case. So when we talk about opioid free, we're talking about not using opioids as your single line analgesic. We're talking about doing everything else first. And then if you need to using the opioids, so then that kind of transitions into the, um, opioid reduced. So mm -hmm. how, what does that look like practically? So, um, instead of inducing with fentanyl, you induce with esmolol. So you're using a direct inhibitor of the sympathetic outflow to blunt the tachycardia and the hypertension from intubation. Yep. So you're limiting the exposure there. <clears throat> then you run the patient in an appropriate depth of anesthetic, either through a TIVA with propofol or, um, then, uh, or gas 
And then towards the end of the case, working in things like some ketamine, running a IV lidocaine infusion, using some bolus magnesium or magnesium infusion. So anything other than opioids for analgesia, as the case would warrant or is uh, allowed, uh, Toradol, IV Tylenol, things like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then once the patient's awake, then doing an assessment. How are you? How are you feeling? Um, how's the pain? Um, and then and then treating from that. And what we have found through just doing that in kind of a pilot process, uh, we were reducing opioid use in the OR by a significant amount. Um, yeah. When we first started the QI project in the lab, Coley's, um, the first random 50 chart polls we, we did, we noticed that uh, the average use, now this is for about an hour and 50-minute case, patients were getting about 250 mics of fentanyl and up to 2 milligrams of Dilaudid just intraoperatively. Wow. And that's a, you know, a minimally invasive laparoscopic case we felt like that's overkill. So we started looking at the nuances of, okay, well, what's going on? And what we noticed for us was that we were kind of rushing the induction, push, push, push medications. We'd ask our trainees or uh, CRNAs that we were working with, do you have the airway? Yes. Then you kind of push in your paralytic of choice. And at the same time that whoever was at the head of the bed might be, you know, starting to transition some gas on as well. So you're kind of doing an IV induction as well as an inhalation induction, and you're overlapping. You put the tube in. You haven't allowed the medications to start working. So you see the tachycardia, the hypertension. Uh, as you take your tube in, the next blood pressure, patient's on the floor, hypotensive. Right. So what do you do? Treat it with a little phenylephrine, and you back your gas off. And what we noticed was practitioners were getting distracted doing other things. When the time the surgery rolled around, the first incision, light anesthesia, tachycardia right. hypertension. Oh, my gosh, it's pain. And then here comes a big slug of opioids. Yep. So we slowed, purposefully slowed down our induction uh, to allow the medications the proper amount of time to work. Um, we did not allow an inhalation induction to be done until the tube was in, then you can turn your gas on. And we noticed <clears throat> an incredible amount of hemodynamic stability was achieved. Um, and we cut out a lot of opioids right around the end time of incision because the patients yeah. were at the appropriate depth of anesthesia. Um, you know, and it's just that attention to detail, um, that sometimes I think we get busy and, you know, we, we just don't do what we're supposed to do to the level yeah. that we should. Oh, absolutely. That is fantastic. Let me revisit a couple of things you said. So um, the slowed induction, tell me a little mm -hmm. more about that in, in terms of what does it actually look like? Does it look like giving, mm -hmm. you know, waiting a little longer after your mm -hmm. lidocaine and propofol? Is that what it is? Or tell me the specifics. So what would, when I do this, I will, I'll dose lidocaine, um, a milligram per kilo and I'll, I'll watch the clock and give it 90 seconds and then I'll slowly start to trickle in some propofol. 
Um, and I give it in a, you know, a, a flowing IV so that it, as the IV is dripping, I don't stop it from dripping. So it, that kind of helps me measure the, the time to give it. And I'll give about a milligram per kilo to a milligram and a half of propofol. Um, then the paralytic and then uh, about a half a milligram per kilo of Esmolol uh -huh. about two to three minutes before we plan to put a tube in. So all told this process takes about four, about four and a half minutes, uh -huh. um, which seems like a lifetime for what we're used to, but it's a, just a slow, gentle process. And that's what it looks like. And go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, you know what it reminds me of? I had an attending when I was a resident who uh, used to say that if you push your propofol slowly, you need a lot less of it. And he mm -hmm. would show you that you could do an induction with about seven cc's or 70 milligrams of propofol instead of 150. You just had to go slow. And it was, mm -hmm. we, uh, I think all the residents really appreciated seeing that because it was just a very different take than the normal, you know, slug in 200 milligrams of propofol and, um, and then, you know, kind of get that immediate effect. Exactly. I, uh, when I was a trainee, we had, uh, Kit Montgomery was one of our faculty members at Kentucky and he was fantastic. He had started off as a pharmacologist and worked as a pharmacist before he went to medical school and became an anesthesiologist. And we would have, uh, I think it was on Thursdays, we'd have lab Coley day and he would say, okay, the first two cases you get to do your way and you can do them however you want. Mm. And he said, you know, then you're going to do the, the middle one my way. And then the last two, you're going to do, do them on your own, but you're going to do it with the techniques that we've just taught you. Yeah. And it was the slow, you know, he's like, you know how to use the drugs, you know how they work, give them time, let them do their job. Mm -hmm. It makes your job easier. And yeah, so a no, lot I of that is, you know, Kit Montgomery for me. So. Totally. Totally. Yeah, no, I think it's so nice to have that exposure to just a different idea and a different take on it. And, and maybe, you know, like with you, then later, you know, you, it, it informs your thought process when you're trying to think outside the box a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So another thing you mentioned, which I'm a huge fan of, in fact, it's how I do all my inductions is with Esmolol instead of fentanyl. And, you know, I'm interested, I have had a couple of times where, you know, my I'll do, teach the residents this and they'll go do it with another attending. And that attending will then come to me and say, you know, I'm worried that our, our residents are doing this uh, because of the data on starting beta blockers on beta blocker naive patients on on the day of surgery. Now, my take on this, and I uh, you know want to make sure that you agree, is that that is not at all what we're talking about when we talk about starting beta blockers on beta blocker naive patients. Right, the the trials that looked at that looked at starting large doses of metoprolol on a patient who you know was not on a beta blocker. This is a short acting a beta blocker in a patient that we're monitoring very, very closely that has a very short half-life. Uh, and I don't think that the, those risks of stroke that are seen, you know, in some of those trials apply in this, in this scenario. Do you agree? I, I 130% agree. I, you know, <laughs> those were um, long-lasting beta blockers given for an extended amount of time. We're using them intraoperatively only and, you know, short bursts. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't think that that's what the literature is referring to at all. 
Great. I agree. And I, you know, I think this is a safe practice and one that allows us to, like you said, to forego that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes up to 150, 200, who knows how many mics of fentanyl people are giving, you know, right prior to induction to blunt the sympathetic response to intubation, which we can do mm-hmm. with Esmolol at least as well, if not, in fact, usually better. Right. Right. And when people circle back to me and they say, you know, what, what in the world are you doing? And I said, well, why are you giving fentanyl? Well, to block the sympathetic outflow. Is that a direct or indirect way? It's an indirect way. Yeah. So why, why would you choose an indirect route to get you where you want to go? Why not go straight there? You know, block what you want to block with the right tool. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing you mentioned is Toradol and, you know, the mm-hmm. kind of one of the one of the classic surgeon anesthesiologist uh, clashes is around Toradol, of course, and, and some surgeons who really are opposed to it, worrying about bleeding. Uh, is that a conversation you've had or, or your department has had with the surgical department there? And how has that been resolved? Is it pretty easy to use Toradol? Um, it, it depends. I, th- I think the the arguments anymore for bleeding risk excuse me, around one or two doses is um, not there. I don't think that's an issue. Um, What I do think is an issue is in um, GI cases or bowel cases, uh, anastomotic breakdown or um, leaks. Um, I think even with one dose, I think the evidence for that is coming coming out. Um, So in, in cases where we're doing, you know, GI surgery where you're hooking gut back up to gut, we won't use it, but mm-hmm. in everybody else we do, and we don't get a lot of pushback for bleeding. We, we, we use it in the cardiac patients postoperatively without concern for bleeding. Yeah. Great. All right. And a very potent, obviously analgesic that doesn't carry the side effects of opioids. Um, and then you mentioned exactly. Tylenol as well. Um, and so are you giving pre-op Tylenol and then, uh, you know, you wouldn't obviously in a lab coli unless it went a lot longer than anticipated, um, still be there six hours later to give an IV dose. Are you giving an IV dose in the PACU or how are you doing that? Um, so yes, um, we are giving, uh, pre-medications with, uh, Tylenol, gabapentin and a Celebrex and then going to the OR for the lab colis. Um, if the patients aren't, uh, eating, for whatever reason, then we'll do an IV Tylenol. But otherwise, when they get to the recovery room and they time out for it, we'll give them PO at that point. But almost everybody okay. is awake and eating in the recovery room. So IV great. Tylenol isn't typically first line. Yeah, great. All right. So, you know, some people uh, are going to think opioid-free anesthesia, you know, and think, all right, I can see, sure, you know, if you are doing an ankle procedure and you've got a a great regional block, then of course you don't need uh, any opiates because they're not going to feel any pain. But when we're talking about, you know, something like an open Whipple or, you know, a big open surgery uh, without, let's say, and let's say an open Whipple without an epidural or let's say, a, you know, a, a neck procedure like a thyroid uh, that you can't do an epidural for, you know, is it possible to do those kind of cases without any opiates? Um, Whipple's, Yes, uh, we've done a couple of large liver resections, completely opioid free. Um, a couple of them we've used, you know, a regional technique postoperatively, tap blocks. Um, but you you can do it. Uh, we've done it um, for thyroids. You know, 
that would be, I think, a little difficult because of the, you know, we rely on a rimifentanyl infusion in those cases right. to to help. You know, those those are patients that are classically monitored, and you can't use a paralytic. Um, so I don't think that that would be a good case. But I think in these other cases, yeah, I think you could do uh, an opioid free, at least a, an opioid reduced through careful planning, um, you know, careful consideration, what medications you're going to use, when you're going to use them, get the timing appropriate. Yeah. I think the so, other, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think the other thing that, um, we don't do a good job of that is a key component of this is, uh, realigning expectations for the patient. Um, yes. As well as the, the staff that's going to care for them before, during and after. But, you know, when we have our patients come in, we, we kind of feel them out and say, okay, you know, the expectation that you're going to leave here feeling no pain is not realistic. And then we present to them a very realistic expectation for what they will feel, uh, what we feel is appropriate and what we expect is inappropriate. And, um, they hear that multiple times. Uh, we've gotten to the point where, um, our surgeons have believe in this process now, and they will educate the patients in the clinic, uh, for expectations when the patients come to our pre or pre-surgery anesthesia testing center. Uh, they'll hear it from the staff there. They'll hear it from the nurses in the holding room the morning of the anesthesiologist will repeat it again. So by the time they come to us the morning of surgery, they've heard it four times. And when we see them in the recovery room, they'll say, Oh yeah. You know, you, you said this would happen. You said, you know, my shoulder was, might hurt from, uh, from the laparoscopic, you know, the bubbles up under the diaphragm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is it, is it uncomfortable? Do you want some pain medicine for it? No, no, but it's really cool how you said that, you know, <laughs> just the under, the understanding that they have of it. Um, right. where they understand, ah, oh, this is normal. This is expected, right? I don't need to treat this. Right. Yeah. There was a great, uh, article in the New York times a, a few years ago from a woman who, and I don't remember all the details, but she needed some sort of GYN surgery when she happened to be in Europe. She's American, but she happened to be in Europe, I think traveling and she needed a kind of relatively urgent, uh, GYN surgery, maybe an ovarian torsion or something mm -hmm. and, or a cyst, maybe an ovarian cystectomy. And she had the surgery there in France, I think. And then afterwards, they gave her a prescription for ibuprofen. And she said, you know, don't I need something stronger? And they said, no, uh, you know, you don't need anything stronger. And she said, well, well what am I supposed to do, you know, if, if the pain breaks through the ibuprofen? And they said, you know, drink some tea and stay in bed, <laughs> you know, and she kind of <laughs> yeah. she was just so foreign to what she had got known from, you know, the just growing up and being a patient at times in the United States. And, but when she got that expectation, you know, from them and got it through her head, she actually found that it was very tolerable. It wasn't pain-free, but it wasn't unbearable. And then she was able to do the mm -hmm. entire recovery with no opiates at all. Right. Um, so, uh, let me ask you, I think of this as kind of the labetalol versus fentanyl debate. And I've asked a variety of people about this and I've gotten different answers. But, you know, I, I, you could imagine that if intraoperatively you see tachycardia and hypertension, you <laughs> could either, uh, I mean, obviously, first you want to make sure you actually are anesthetizing the patient. But assuming that, you know, it's, it's, they are, they have adequate anesthesia, at least to not have recall, et cetera, you could deepen your anesthetic. 
Uh, and if they still are a little tachycardic, a little hypertensive, you could, and what we often do is give some opiate, or you could imagine you could give labetalol to treat that same thing. And I, and so I think the, the question is, you know, you're, you're clearly not going to remember the pain. So mm-hmm. is there a downside to the experience of it, even if you won't have any recall of it? In other words, is it just as good to give labetalol or should we be using opiates in that situation? And I'm, I guess I could guess where you'll come down, but I'm just curious what you think. Right. So I, I think you hit it right there. Um, first, check your depth of anesthesia. Are you appropriately anesthetized for what's going on in the case? Second, when I do these, I, I look to see, you know, what is the, what is the surgeon's doing? Is this going to be very short-lived? Can I tolerate it? And I know the patient's medical history, and I know those that can tolerate a little hypertension and tachycardia, and I know those that can't or shouldn't. Um, and if it's going to be a short-lived thing, um, you know, I might let the, the blood pressure rise maybe 15% off baseline before I treat it. Um, and sometimes I'll notice, you know, blood pressure will go up, it'll go down a little bit. You know, my tolerance is about 15% off what the mean has been around that. Now we get to that point where, okay, now I need to treat it. It's a little high for my taste for where the patient should be. I'll give a little asthma wall because most of these events in the, in the case are very short lived and asthma wall for me is great. It's about seven, eight, nine minutes duration, another little, um, quarter to a half milligram per kilo, little bolus, get it in, works quick. Doesn't last for long. I haven't bought the farm with it. Um, not like with labetalol. Um, you know, it just gets me through that little bump for right. some cases we've, we've run a esmolol infusion where we know the stimulation is going to be a little bit more, a little bit deeper, like in the case of a Whipple or this liver uh, resection. So we've done and the patients tolerate it beautifully. Yep. And I do think it matters because I, you know, I think the literature has been there for, for a while. There's, you know, papers from the, the late nineties looking at interoperative opioid use. And uh, there was an article in the Canadian journal of anesthesia that, was um, I think they were doing hysterectomies and they did a low dose fentanyl interoperatively and a high dose fentanyl interoperatively. And, you know, opioid use begets opioid. And the more opioids the patients got interoperatively, the higher doses they needed postoperatively to manage the pain. And that lasted mm. a lot longer. I think it was up to 16 hours that they measured uh, the difference between the two. You know, and if we're talking about, um, you know, societal's abuse of opioids downstream, then I think what we do in the operating room matters. So yeah, long winded answer to your, to your question. I think, you know, even the little bit has an effect. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I think if you, like you said, if it's a brief, especially if it's a brief period of time of, you know, added stimulation and you can treat it, um, you know, as Malal, as you said, is a, is a great drug for it. Um, and the other thing, you know, I didn't mention earlier, but I find with Esmolol, um, with induction at least, is that, you know, even if a patient is starting low, so they let's say they have a heart rate of 50 or 60, 
Esmolol, though it might take you from a heart rate of 95 down to a heart rate of 60, it's not going to take you from a heart rate of 50 down to a heart rate of 20. You know, it, it has that kind of, um, it, it won't do much to your heart rate if you're starting at 50, but it will prevent the tachycardia. Yes. Yeah. It has a very nice little safety window there. Right. And so you really can use it because that's another thing you hear in terms of people being reluctant is, well, you know, what about a patient who I'm gonna, I don't want to make them asystolic, but it won't, it won't do that. It's actually, uh, you know, very safe. Um, so, uh, we should say, you know, in general, we're obviously talking a lot about how to avoid or reduce opioids. And so can you just say a few words about why we want to do that? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, clearly patients who are uh, getting more intraoperatively may be at risk to need more postoperatively. But mm -hmm. in general, why do we want to reduce opioids in patients? Right. So I, I think a lot of our trainees um, and faculty have not really engaged very deeply with their patients and actually listen to them. And as far as, you know, what do you want your experience to be? And I think if you listen to your patients, the patients will tell you, I want to wake up quick. I want to wake up clear headed. I don't want to feel drunk or groggy, especially the ones that have surgery before. They don't like that feeling. They don't want to be nauseated. Uh, they don't want to be constipated. They don't want to itch. A lot of patients say, you know, I've heard stuff in the news. I don't want to be addicted to opioids. I don't want, you know, I don't want to use them anymore. Um, and so I think those are the reasons why we uh, should be a lot more judicious about opioid use. Um, and then there's, you know, the practical side about it. There's patients that are a little more sensitive to opioids and you run the risk of uh, respiratory depression in those patients that you really don't want to have that, um, patients. I'm, I'm, I look at the world through a cardiac paradigm. So those patients with, uh, depressed EFs or, you know, right-sided weakness who have some element of pulmonary hypertension, too much opioids, they stop breathing well, they get a little hypercarbic, pulmonary pressures go up, right heart gets strained more. These are things I don't want. Right. So I think there's the practical side of it too. Yeah, it's, not, it's clearly a lot of reasons. And then, you know, there's some suggestion, right, at least in um, cancer patients that uh, opioid use may uh, put people at risk for increased cancer recurrence or uh, metastases, mm -hmm. right? Is that um, mm -hmm. a reasonable, uh, is there reasonable literature for that? I think so. Um, I, I know literature in coming out of England and the UK is, uh, I think, demonstrated that. I don't think that has really kind of met mainstream over here in the U S although we're starting to kind of talk about that and think about it. And, um, I think more, more practitioners are embracing a TIVA versus an anesthetic gas, uh, yeah. in cancer surgeries because of that. Yeah. And then opioid induced hyperalgesia is a real thing, right? Maybe more in mm -hmm. like long-term opiate use, but if intra-op and post-op use leads to long-term use, then, you know, you face that as well. Exactly. So you mentioned, uh, when we talked about thyroids, you mentioned remifentanil. I think a lot of folks, we certainly also tend to use remifentanil drips for those. Do you think of remifentanil any differently because it kind of goes away so quickly? It, do, it, do we get a little bit of a free pass using remi intraoperatively, uh, or does it have some of the same downsides? No, it, it has s similar downsides. And there was a, 
study that looked at um, patients undergoing lab coles that were given Esmol versus fentanyl, which was the, kind of the gold standard versus fentanyl for that reason, and looked at uh, opioid use for pain control to achieve the same pain scores in the recovery room. And they found that uh, the biggest opioid users were those that were exposed to the remifentanil huh. intraoperatively. So, yeah, I, I think these effects of opioid sensitivity and hyperalgesia are well documented. I think they're there. And I think they happen probably a lot quicker than we've ever really thought about. Right. So when we think about reducing, we obviously we've talked about intraoperative reduction of opiates. Um, mm-hmm. That will, in part, as you've said, lead to a reduction uh, in post-operative use. Um, is do we have any feel whether it's kind of more important to reduce intra-op, post-op, or, or just in general we want to reduce as much as we can? Um, I think they're I think they're integrated. Um, you know, society and um, you know we're all kind of now handcuffed with how much opioids patients can be sent home with post-operatively. Um, I think you have to back up and look at their intra or their in-hospital use of opioids. And then, you know, we'll okay, go back a little bit earlier. What was their intraoperative exposure? So I think if we, if we minimize from the beginning, then I think it's easier to minimize in the hospital. Then I think it's easier for patients to tolerate what they're sent home with. So I think it's all integrated, and I think it starts in the OR, and I think we're the best people to to kind of spearhead that. Yeah, absolutely. Are you guys doing anything around kind of prehabilitation with folks that are already on opiates at home preoperatively to try to reduce the uh, preoperative dosage they're on? Uh, We are. Um, Dr. Padma Galur, who is head of our our pain group, um, has a wonderful pain clinic. So, you know, spine patients are kind of the prototypic patient that comes to mind for these. Um, those that are on higher doses of opioids before they come in for spine surgery, go through her clinic and get assessed and they go through a wean, an opioid wean so that, you know, hopefully the spine surgery is curative. It's going to be a bump in the road, but we need to get them titrated down. So, um, there is a opioid prehabilitation that can be done for those patients. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, you know, kind of summing up, it sounds like what your all approach has been and, and, you know, has been successful is to first just rethink the approach and to say, rather than use a bunch of opiates and, oh, well, we can also supplement with some other stuff to say, you know, let's do all this other stuff. And as a last resort, use the opiates. Mm-hmm. And even just that reprioritization has really reduced the usage a lot. Is that right? That's kind of the, the kind of first step. Exactly. Um, there was a graphic in one of the, the articles I sent you. Um, we had a, uh, one of our fellows that went through the perioperative medicine fellowship with us, uh, wrote a beautiful review and she's got a graphic in her paper. Uh, kind of the foundation of the pyramid has always been opioids. And then, when that seems to fail, then you, you know, you add more opioids and more opioids, and then you go for kind of the eclectic stuff like the ketamine or the lidocaine infusions or regional technique. What we've done at Duke is just flip that upside down. So we use non-opioid analgesics first, 
And then if the need, you know, opioids for us becomes the rescue. And so, you know, asking, I think we should all ask two questions. One, why do we do what we do? And is there a better way? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what we did. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think really, really useful paradigm shift. Um, well, Mike, this has been great and I think super, uh, super useful for folks. Uh, anything we didn't touch on, but that you'd like to leave folks with? Um, yeah, I, I think that you can't underestimate, um, the need for education and getting, you know, you, we, we can't do this just in the operating room. Uh, because if you just do it in the operating room, you're not going to be successful if you're really trying to, you know, kind of change culture, change, <clears throat> excuse me, change practice as far as opioids go. Um, you need to start by educating yourself about why it is we're doing this and, you know, what is the reasonable expectation? And then, you know, branching out and educating the patient for expectations. But, you know, getting the surgeons to understand what it is that we're doing and involve them. And it's a, a true partnership and then involving education with the recovery room nurses and the floor nurses and, uh, family members. And the more people that I think you involve in this kind of a process, if this is what, you know, you want to move to in your practice, the more people that you involve, the, the more successful it will be. And I don't think it can be under it underappreciated just how important that aspect is. Yeah, I believe that 100%. Um, well, thank you. Uh, again, great stuff. Let's turn to the section of the show where we make random recommendations. So I'll start with you. Uh, something that you'd recommend to the audience to check out? Um, so there's a, a book I finished reading uh, just before the break. Uh, it was uh, The Road Less Stupid by <laughs> Keith Cunningham. And it's a, it's kind of a business book. It, I'm interested in like business management because there's a lot of business management principles that I think are easily translated into how we think about an anesthetic. And I'll, I'll use that with the trainees to kind of teach things. But the premise of the book is to build in time for you to sit aside uninterrupted maybe an hour or two a week with a notebook and just think, just clear your mind and think, think about a problem or think about like in this case, you know, my practice around opioids um, and just kind of almost mind map the interactions and, you know, how things would play on each other. And it's an, it's a really interesting book from that standpoint. Yeah. I don't very neat. We, I don't think, we don't build enough time for ourselves to just kind of decompress and think about what it is that we do. Yeah, uh, that I didn't, I'm not, I haven't been aware of that book, but I will definitely check it out. And I, I couldn't agree more about the importance of taking that time. I've recently started to do a little journaling, which is not something I've ever done. And I find it to be very useful for that same reason to set aside time just to just to think and write and reflect um, may seem obvious to those who've done it, but uh, I find it very, very useful. And I could imagine that really doing that same technique around, um, you know, thinking through issues at work would be uh, very, very useful. Exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm a recent journal -er, uh, and it's, 
you know, it's, it's really helpful to kind of collect your thoughts and think things through like that. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And there's some great apps out there and, and I'm not getting any money from any companies, but uh, the one that, that um, I came across is called uh, Journal One, I think, uh, or One, let me actually look. It's called uh, Day One, Day One. And it's an app mm-hmm. that you don't have to pay anything for, but um, if you want kind of the added functionality, you pay a, a you know minimal fee, a couple bucks a month. But um, mm-hmm. but it allows you to journal and uh, daily, and then you can see you know kind of what you did on that same day last year or the year before, which is interesting. And I haven't gotten I've been doing it long enough to see that yet. But but I thought that was uh, an interesting functionality. You can attach pictures, videos. Um, they've got all kinds of stuff that I haven't yet explored. But it's a nice way. I'm sure there are other apps out there too. But I think you know doing it in a way that you can access so easily, whether from your computer or your phone, I think makes it easier for folks to do rather than having to kind of get home and pull out a paper journal. But I think whatever works for you, it's a really useful technique. Mm -hmm. I'm an analog guy. I like the feel of a good pen and the the smell of a fresh notebook. Nice. So you're doing it on paper? Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, yeah, as I said, whatever works. And, you know, some people are going back to paper books these days, you know, and there's a lot to be said for that. I got to say, I miss the days of uh, sitting down with a book in my hand. You know, now I always read on my phone and I, I actually miss having a real book. So uh, exactly. I can see the, the enjoyment of a paper journal as well. Um, well, I will say my, my random recommendation is going to be uh, there's a podcast called The Armchair Expert. And I actually am plus minus on the podcast itself. But there was a great episode of Armchair Expert where uh, the host, Dak Shepard, interviewed Ira Glass, uh, the founder and host of uh, This American Life. And if you've ever listened to This American Life, it's just a fantastic show. It's been it's one of the longest running and oldest podcasts uh, out there. Of course, started as a radio show before it was a podcast and still is a radio show. But Ira Glass is such an interesting individual and really one of the, the founders of, of the world of podcasts, really. And so yeah, hearing him uh, discuss the the starting of This American Life, the way he thinks about interviews and stories was really, really interesting. So if you're a This American Life fan or an Ira Glass fan, I recommend checking out that episode of The Armchair Expert. Uh, and we have an audience uh, random recommendation today, actually a couple. So uh, one audience member, Marco Castillo, uh, wrote in to say he really recommends an old classic Cien Años de Soledad, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, which is, of course, one of the uh, most famous novels uh, ever written and, of course, a fantastic one. So if you've never read it, check it out. Uh, and then our very own um, uh, ACRAC intern, uh, Kimia Kashkuli, wrote in to recommend The Mandalorian on Disney+, Plus, which is one of the um, new original shows by Disney+. Plus. And I have not watched any of it, but Kimia says... It's one of the best shows she's seen in five years, and I've heard a lot of other good things from folks as well. So if you're looking for a new TV show to check out, I think you can get a free month or something of Disney Plus and check out The Mandalorian. I don't know, Mike, have you seen that at all? I have. We uh, we we binge-watched it over the break. All right. Do um, you agree it's good? It is absolutely incredible. That is uh, – I, I totally agree with your with your intern. Awesome. Well, I now I really have to check it out. All right. Well, thank you to uh, Marco and to Kimia. And of course, Mike, thank you so much to you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. That was great. Hopefully you got a lot out of that. I certainly did. Go to the website, com. Let us know what you thought. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and the podcast is at Podcast. You can also 
Join the conversation on the Facebook group by looking for the Facebook group called ACRAC. It is a lot of fun, and uh, our wonderful intern, Kimia Kashkuli, is posting review questions and uh, flashback episodes and all kinds of fun stuff. So check it out on Twitter and Facebook. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, you can make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. A huge thank you to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Of course, a big thank you to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu, who are making outlines for some of the episodes that you'll see popping up. I think those are really nice and a nice way to make a good study uh, session out of the episodes. And, of course, uh, thank you, as always, to Kimia Kashkuli, our intern. And our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. He does a great job, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. Remember, we have a live ACRAC episode. Coming up in April, on April 24th, it will be in front of a live studio audience. And if you are in the Baltimore area and interested in coming, just shoot an email to ACRAC at ACRAC.com, and we will let you know some more details as it gets closer. should be a lot of fun. And if we can figure out how to make all the technical stuff go well, it'll be recorded and released on the air after we hold it in person. All right. That is it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Michael Manning, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.